You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Uh, good morning, good morning. Now, some... Um, <clears throat> I'm Stefan Stern. There may be a caption coming. Yeah, there we are. Um, there may be... Uh, there are, as you know, some uh, modest uh, broadcasting companies who offer you uh, one thought for the day every morning at about 10 to 8. We have not one thought. We have not two. We have, count them, three thoughts for the day to get you going this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there will be a prize for anyone who can uh, connect them in a summary with one theme, uh, as our two uh, colleagues just have. Uh, let me invite them up onto the stage. Uh, first, we have... I'll, if all three, do we want all three or just one at a time? What do we think? One at a time. Um, uh, I'll introduce them first before, before inviting... <laughs> I needed those idiot boards, really. It would have been even better. Uh, I'll tell you about our three speakers first and then invite the first one to come up. Uh, we have uh, Robert Phillips, who is uh, head, head of uh, just about everything now uh, at Edelman, quite rightly. He's also my boss. Uh, he's, uh, he's going to speak about uh, the, uh, what he's calling the advance of citizen capitalism. I've seen the draft. It's excellent. It's going to be very challenging. After Robert, we have uh, uh, K.A.S. Quinn, um, who joins that wonderful uh, litany of uh, AJP Taylor and uh, PBH May, <laughs> and now K.A.S. Quinn, uh, who is a writer writing books for older children. She's going to talk to us about Victorian values and the individuality of Crystal Palace. And last, we will have Josh Howie. Where's Josh? Josh is, um, uh, I gather, a failed Buddhist, a failed rabbi, but a smash as a comedian. And uh, we're going to have him on uh, last. Uh, let me invite Robert then up to the stage, who's going to talk about the advance of citizen capitalism. Robert, thank you. Uh, I'm probably going to pick up on some of the themes that were covered in the panel discussion uh, yesterday evening around uh, the shareholder versus uh, society. And uh, in one of the summaries just now, we also talked about um, a new social contract, and I think that will come into play as well. I think... The most consequential outcome of the current financial crisis is actually the challenge to capitalism itself. And I think this is quite energising and it's quite exciting and quite optimistic. We should welcome the moment. It's a huge opportunity not for us just to reappraise, but actually to reset our value system. And I think now, here, we can stop obsessing endlessly about banks and bankers. And we've got to stop looking for solutions either from government or from regulation. And the regulation question came, again came up last night. The reason for this is that the opportunity for reformation and reform and renaissance actually lies within our power. And I believe that capitalism can and should be built from the bottom up, rebuilt from the bottom up, and it should be citizen-led. And to Nassim's point last night, I think that if it was citizen-led, it can be anti-fragile. Now, the terms like shared values, shared interests, long-termism, engagement, are all sorts of the buzzword bingo of 2011, the sort of Harvard Business Review gobbledygook. And I think what we need to do is to take those words and make them more than just words and embed them as proper values within society. And I think that we have to look to progressive business leaders to do it with us. And Giles Gibbons on the panel last night said that business does have a role to play in transforming society, and I think that's right. I think that we as citizens have a role to play in transforming business. Some of the CEOs that are out there, people like Indra Noy at PepsiCo, who talks about performance with purpose, 
or people like Paul Pullman at Unilever, who looks to the long term, are absolutely right in what they're doing. But they're sadly few in number. You can probably count them on the fingers of, of less than two hands. Citizen shareholders and citizen consumers now need to get active and to advocate their support quite openly for the companies that are getting it right and to hold to account those companies and those business leaders who are getting it wrong to hold to account the businesses and business leaders who have no real appetite for transformation or transition. The point is, and we heard this in a cultural sense as well earlier this morning, is that real change is not going to come from the top. It's not going to come from the financial system, and it's not going to come from the politicians. And if we keep on waiting for the bankers' apologies to come, it will be both distracting and futile. I think we have to draw the line and move on. We're all actionists and activists now. The speed of the web, the immediacy of the web, and the consequences of our hyper-connected society are bringing about radical and obviously often surprising change at considerable speed. We just have to ask the, 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 uh, the residents of Tunis, of Cairo, of Benghazi or Tripoli. Democracy now is more real and more unfettered than it ever has been before. And as we can see, anger can quickly turn to political revolt. Now, I'm not advocating that we walk from here, surrounded by sheep, and the, the, uh, the fields of Port Marion, and take the streets of the City of London in our, in our dinner party numbers. Um, but what I am suggesting is that we begin to think about a capitalist system that is both citizen-led and, at the same time, more environmentally responsible. So what would that look like? First, and I think that um, Cliff from Cass was, was talking about this yesterday, I think it's absolutely right, we have to demand reform that moves beyond just box-ticking compliance, which is where we've been for too long. Citizen capitalism insists on a more fundamental re-examination of our values, of our principles, and actually of our leadership as well. Second, citizen capitalism will insist on profit with purpose. It will ask for more and should ask for more than a narrow and selfish focus on profit alone. Third, again, from the bottom up, Citizen shareholders can play a more active and a more empowered role. How can they do this? Through supervisory boards, through a non-executive presence. Fourth, we need to build new ownership models, and these need to be built on a broader stakeholder basis. They need to talk to long-term value. We should rightly expect more mutuals, more partnerships, and more cooperatives. Fifth, we need institutional reform. We need government reform. We need constitutional reform, and we need to look again at the poor performance of the legacy organisations of Bretton Woods on a global scale. Six, we have to work hard to improve financial literacy across the board. And seventh and finally, but not least, we have to measure success differently. We have to look to material well-being and happiness, and not just on financial metrics alone. The voices need to be heard. Peaceful revolution of capitalism... Peaceful reform is both possible and it has clear historical precedent. We can reflect on the vision of people like Robert, Robert Owen at the turn of the 19th century or the Rochdale pioneers 40 years later, and we can look to them for inspiration. We need more visionaries today. We need more leaders. We need more people prepared to experiment with new models. We need more people prepared to challenge the status quo. We need more people to help us transition from where we should never have been to where we now need to be. 
And for those of you who are journalists among us, we need more media amplifiers to really get the message across. Some of these points were well covered in a book which some of you may have read, The Road from Ruin, which was written by the economist Matthew Bishop uh, with Michael Green. And The Road from Ruin gets it right on many counts, but it gets it wrong on others. Green and Bishop see in Cameron and Clegg um, and what they call coalitionomics, a new consensus, and that therefore, because we have a new consensus through this coalition, we have a more citizen-centric approach. But I think to the point on government, it's essential that we do not confuse short-term political expedience with the safeguarding of values. Governments can't safeguard values. Governments are institutionally constructed to think only to the near term. And only those with true citizen values can, I think, look beyond the four- or five-year horizon. So what role, then, for citizens? Well, an, em an empowered and enfranchised citizenship can and must hold both businesses and governments to account. And transparency for us is an awesome weapon. And that means that everything that is done and can be done should be done to allow citizenship to thrive. But ruthlessly cutting back the state and expecting we, the people, to pick up the slack is simply not the answer. This, to me, suggests nothing more than political escapism and uh, political profiteering. Citizens are not here to supplant the state. We are here to hold the state to account and to work with it within a new social and trust compact. We need to invest in citizens and society. We need to invest emotionally as well as financially. And I think the big society is actually failing on both counts. Bishop and Green argue that capitalism needs to rediscover its soul. They're right. But capitalism with a soul has citizens at its heart. And when we, the citizens, look into our hearts, we know that we have, truthfully know that we have, to build a new form of capitalism altogether. Because I think if we were to ask ourselves a question, we know that in some ways our principles have become debased and we've lost sense of our, our true sense of value. We know that we've been living beyond our means, not just in financial terms, but within an increasingly fragile planetary ecosystem also. We know that we've been driven by wants and not by needs, and we get trapped on some sort of hedonic treadmill. So I would say that we need to rethink our own values, and we have to rethink our own sense of community. And in doing so, we would do well to, to heed the wise words of, of Professor Tim Jackson, writing in Prosperity Beyond Growth, a story about us spending money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people we don't really care about. And I think, to Tim Jackson's point, these words offer a metaphor for our times because they speak to our political leadership and often to our business leadership too. More importantly, they should speak to each and every one of us in this room. And if a new capitalism, our capitalism, is to emerge from the chaos of recent years, it must be properly values-based and values-driven. It must focus on shared interests. And it must recognise a healthier, purer and more transparent and radical democracy. It needs to be citizen-led. It needs to be wholly accountable to we the people. And we the people need to be wholly accountable to one another. Thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> Thank you, Robert. We might just have time for one instant comment or reaction. If uh, Morris, there's a question. Um, you mentioned the, the, the various companies are following the uh, path of sustainability 
uh, like Unilever. But I was just wondering how uh, companies deal with um, the various contradictions sometimes in what they say and what they do that then makes people cynical about their professions to be um, sustainable or aiming for sustainability. For instance, uh, I was at a conference where Coca-Cola was a sponsor of uh, various well-meaning discussions, one of which was about the problem of obesity in, in developing countries where people were going from positions of starvation direct through to uh, a rise in obesity. And a lot of people there commented on that contradiction. And the other is Unilever, which uh, talks about reducing water use, but then sells products which encourage people to spend a lot of time in the shower. So I was just wondering <laughs> what your thoughts were on that. You're absolutely right. It's full of contradictions. I can't speak for, I can't speak for Coca-Cola. I think Miguel could probably speak for, for Unilever. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and it's probably something that it's a long conversation we've taken offline, because uh, I've got quite profound views on it. Well, deep views, but they're profound. Anyway, <laughs> the point being that um, uh, I think that companies are fully aware, most companies are fully aware of their contradictions. And most companies are, are, are fully aware of they're on a journey. Now, the difference through visionary leadership is those people who are prepared to acknowledge the journey and prepared to say that they're contradictions and prepared to face up to them. Um, and, and there are some companies that are and some companies that, that are not. And one of the things that troubles me more than anything, and Steph and I have a number of conversations about this in the office, is simply is the, 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 the sparsity of business leaders who are prepared to stand up and be counted. And I think if you were to ask Paul Polman, he'll be fully aware of the contradictions uh, and, and, and he and his team are, uh, are working to, to drive through them. Great. Thank you very much. Get off. Right. Um, <laughs> we, have, we haven't got time. We haven't got time. That's it. I love the Tim Jackson quote. It, that must be the opposite of the car sticker that says, uh, the guy who dies with the most toys wins, um, which is the, uh, perhaps the investment banker uh, attitude. Uh, our next speaker, uh, Keres Quinn, uh, gear change. Victorian values and the individuality of Crystal Palace. Please come up to talk to us. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Um, there are two things to say. The first is there is a rather good comedian coming on after me. And if I had a choice between a treatise on Victorian values and a comedian, I, uh, I would go for the jokes. So I will be as brief as possible. Uh, the second thing is uh, Simon Sharma's here. I want to throw up because I am not a historian. I simply like the Crystal Palace, so you're not getting history, really. Just You're getting a bit of Julie Andrews singing my favorite things. And uh, the Victorians are just about my favorite things. Are they a perfect society? No. Uh, as we said yesterday, they send small boys down mines for 18-hour work days. They send smaller boys up chimneys. And if you ever read Water Babies, which is a very good read, you would not have much enthusiasm for the Victorians. Uh, Queen Victoria was blinkered at best. Uh, Prince Albert was a prig. Um, what else do we have? Uh, Disraeli was a rogue. Gladstone was a bore. Charles Dickens was mean to his wife, Miriam. And Florence Nightingale got it wrong at Scutari. Yet they are a society that managed to deliver to us Florence Nightingale, Queen Victoria, and Benjamin Disraeli. And this is where it does tie in with this conference. They are fantastic individuals. 
And while the Victorians, Ad Edvesi told us very briefly yesterday, did like committees, parliamentary committees, causes, joint projects, subscriptions, charity bazaars, they also fervently believed in a form of evolution that we don't really believe in today. And that is that the individual has not just the right, but the duty to achieve as an individual. That evolution was meant to go forward and civilization was going to be pushed forward person by person. We don't really believe this in the same way today. And I'm going to discuss briefly two projects, a current, well, vaguely current project for us, the Crystal Palace, uh, I mean, uh, the Millennium Dome, which is our Crystal Palace, and the Victorian's Crystal Palace, which is uh, a very similar project. Now, the Millennium Dome was supposed to be the great symbol of the 21st century. Architecturally, Blair described it as similar to the Eiffel Tower, not in construction, but in terms of the impact it would have. In terms of site, the North Greenwich project would rejuvenate the polluted land around it, and it would really bolster the surrounding <coughs> community. Uh, for entertainment, this was going to be showbiz, educational showbiz for the masses, and they projected footfall in a single year of 12 million visitors. Um, it bombed. Uh, the project came in uh, 200 million over budget. That was 600 million in lottery money and 180 million in public grants on top of corporate sponsorship. Uh, and there was a generous estimate after the year of 6 million visitors. That was half the forecast. Now, this was a major government project, then a Blair government project, so I'm not being politically partisan about this. Um, they had a lot of money. It had five years, this project. It didn't go according to plan. Uh, what went wrong? Uh, part of it was the site. The North Greenwich site was difficult to get to. The transport wasn't quite right. The message was fuzzy. There was lots of fighting on the committees. The building was enormous, but in my personal opinion, they didn't pay enough attention to what went inside of it. There were body zones, journey zones, talk zones, and when I went, it seemed to be a big mixture of things like eight-foot hamsters and plastic body parts. I gave myself two hours to tour the dome, and I really spent 20 minutes and then had a rather bad cup of coffee. Um, David Hockney said the building was lovely. It should have been left empty. And Andrew Lloyd Webber said they should just burn it down. Now, the dome had quite good managing directors. They, they had uh, Jenny Page, Pierre-Yves Gerbeau, and David James. Um, but these were revolving door MDs. Uh, there were dome ministers, Peter Mendelssohn, Lord Faulkner, and then there were helpers like John Prescott and Ken Livingston. There were resignations, uh, Sir Cameron McIntosh, Stephen Bailey, Bob Ayling. Uh, there were problems with this project. Now, let's look at the Crystal Palace. This is quite a different story. Now, it began with a committee. Everyone loves a committee. The Royal Commission for the Exhibition of Industry of All Nations. But even from the start, it's in the committee's name, it's the exhibition. There were 13,000 exhibitions in the building. Uh, the Crystal Palace was going to support the industrial age for all nations, but particularly for Britain. It became a big national party. It was an international PR coup. The committee was headed up by Prince Albert, who was a prodigious worker. He's a great unsung hero in this country. I love Prince Albert. And uh, he also was not without influence. The committee was made up of scientists, designers, 
financiers, industrialists, then a scattering of politicians and grandees. The Crystal Palace was not led by politics. Now, this committee was not founded until 1850. The Crystal Palace was opening on 18, May 1st, 1851. There was no government funding. It was a huge success. 6.2 million people visited the Crystal Palace over six months. And if you put this in context, the entire population of Britain at the time was 20 million. This means that about one in 3.5 of the entire population visited the Crystal Palace. The profits were so enormous from this non-government funded project that they were able to fund the Natural History Museum, the Science Museum, the Royal Albert Hall, and the Victorian Albert Museum. All of these institutions we use today were funded originally out of the profits of the Crystal Palace. It made Prince Albert's reputation. Now, there's a different individual, actually, that I believe embodies the success of this building, and that is Joseph Paxton. Now, Paxton started out as a laborer. He was a gardener. His family were farmers. But he was lucky enough to land a job working in the gardens of the Royal Horticultural Society. They had vast libraries, and they let him get his soil-stayed hands all over the books. And he began a long, hard slog of self-education. He eventually became uh, the head gardener for the Duke of Devonshire. The Duke of Devonshire adored him. And of course, originally I had questions, because the Duke of Devonshire was always called the Bachelor Duke. But that wasn't it. It wasn't that kind of allure. He just thought Paxton was an incredibly bright spark, and he was. Eventually, he not only ran the Duke's gardens, he ran the Duke's finances. And since the Duke was one of the richest men in England, Paxton obviously was very, very capable. In 1850, he was in London on business, and he heard some gossip about the Crystal Palace. The Crystal Palace was having problems because there was committee blight. Uh, there had been 245 entries to build it, and the committee had not found one of them good enough. And another great Victorian, um, Kingdom Brunel, was taking a bunch of designs and trying to meld them together. Paxton thought this was a bad idea. He did a doodle on a blotter, just on a piece of paper in another meeting. Within a week, he had a complete design for the Crystal Palace. The committee balked. They said, oh, you missed the deadline. I mean, we've all had this. But I have a great idea. Oh, you've missed the deadline. But Paxton simply moved around the committee, and he had it published in the Illustrated London News. And the public went wild. They loved his design. Within a month, he not only had an intricate costing for what was one of the first prefabricated iron and glass buildings in the world, he had a complete construction plan. They went through with him, and the project was built on time and under budget. And as I said before, it was an absolutely huge success. So the question is why and how, and, and why not now? Well, Victorians got the site right. It was in Hyde Park. Um, so everyone could come. The press complained like mad, ooh, immigrants in our parks, but it was a terrific site. Uh, they got the message right. Uh, industry, which was a very zippy topic at the time, and empire, which was also very attractive. And they got the public figurehead right, because Queen Victoria adored her husband. She went almost every day for six months with some of her family to uh, the Crystal Palace. And if you were a marketeer, this was the dream endorsement, you know, loved by the Queen. So lots of people came just to see her at the time. 
But I really do believe, despite all these very good things, the most important thing was Paxton. Because once he broke through the red tape of committees, they just gave him the ball and they let him run with it. Now, as I said, the Millennium Dome did have capable executives, but they didn't have Paxton. They didn't have someone with that kind of fire in their belly who would work himself into the ground and kind of take the praise, but mostly take the blame. And that's where Paxton and the other people who worked on this project were amazing. Um, these are recognized characteristics of the Victorians. Work hard, take the blame, you know, the individual is responsible. And these kind of 19th century Victorian characteristics have then segued into the way people perceived 20th century Americans and uh, now I would say 21st century um, China. But I think this is too easy a, a segue. And it's my personal belief that the reason the Victorians um, had such amazing individuals is they had a very particular voice. And when this individual voice came through, no matter what the class or age or gender, the Victorians listened and they heard an amazing thing. Uh, and the sounds they heard are so different and so much more exciting, I think, than the often homogenized hum that's thrust upon us in the world today. So I would revisit your Victorians and look at them as individuals. Thank you. I think, thank you. We're uh, overrunning by popular demand. Uh, uh, Derek, ask a question. And then one at the front, and then that's it. Yeah. I have some severe disagreement about one point. The Victorians are lovely people, and we should read their novels. Yeah, okay, but there's the reason the project happened on time has little to do with uh, the fact that they're Victorian, and a lot more to do with the, with, with the following condition: that as we as the world became more technological and complexified, projects have you know at that time in the, you know last century or a century and a half ago. Uh, projects used to be delivered much uh, faster than today. Today, because of complexity, we underestimate uh, the, the cost of uh, underestimation and the durations are, are, are much longer. Well, it's, I think so. actually, in terms of in terms of the Crystal Palace, you know, it was two hundred thousand panes of glass. It was prefabricated off-site, and while they had power tools. They were steam-operated power tools. So you would have a kind of steam machine, half the size of this room, running the equivalent of a power drill. And all of the, um, all of the grids were raised by horses. And there were men in medieval smocks, really doing medieval craftsmen. I would argue that there was more room for blunder and more room for problem because of, you know, if you look at how long it takes to build a medieval cathedral, and you look at the time in which the Crystal Palace was finished. So I stand by my Victorians. Well done. There, there. <laughs> I'm also a fan of uh, Paxton, who actually became a Liberal MP. Uh, but the, the beauty of the a great exhibition, and it's something I, I, I spoke between 2005 and 2007 until I got sick of it, that because we had the Olympics, uh, and it's the third time we've had the Olympics, we had a chance to do the IKEA Olympics. And the beauty about Crystal Palace was that every single bolt was numbered, so it was to be taken down and put up again yes. in Sydenham. And it stayed there till 36 until the unfortunate fire. So I, I pursued Sebco to say, build 
the Olympic stadiums and swimming pools and everything, but take them down afterwards and give them to the country and put them up again. And if we had a legacy for the Olympics, it would be actually, if we want to take them to South America or to the Middle East or whatever you want to do with it, make them the IKEA Games so you can take these things around the world. Okay, thank you. Derek, as you know, the the trouble with pursuing Seb Coe is he tends to be able to run away from you rather (laughs) fast. I interviewed him once. I asked him, how much heavier are you now than 1980? He said, oh, about 12 pounds. He looked very very disappointed in himself. Um, Thank you, KS, marvellous. Finally, uh, let's bring uh, Josh Howie up onto the stage to send us off with a laugh. Josh. I'm sorry, that's the worst possible introduction to a comedian. I'm sure it's going to be intensely serious and moving. Josh. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello. Um, About this time, a few hundred miles away in London, my uh, rabbi is standing up in front of the congregation and uh, about to start his his sermon. And... um, I guess, uh, and you know, if I wasn't here, you know, if I wasn't here, I would be there right now. And I actually, I'd like to borrow his opening line, if I may, uh, for my own uh, talk now. Uh, this is meant to be funny. <laughs> Let me uh, just get that out of the way straight away. Um, thank you. Yeah, um, I've, so I've got to refer to notes a little bit. I am, I'm a very scripted comic. I'm very bad at uh, improvising, and me improvising is like a... <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's strange. It's strange for me uh, admitting to you that I'm, that I'm Jewish. Even the word admitting there, it's sort of, sort of negative connotation, secret of it. I mean, I have no problem telling people I'm a comedian, obviously, or that I'm, that I'm Jewish, which is, which is different. Um, you know, uh, uh, that's, that's easy. I mean, people, when people first find out I'm a comic, uh, when I tell them after the gig, um, <laughs> people, yeah, people are interested. I've got to say, this is, very, this is about as different as, like, last night I was in Cardiff performing to 400 stags and hens. Uh, that was actually easier. Uh, and, uh, but I will be doing the same material. So, uh, it's heckling, that's the problem. It's he- people say, how do you deal with heckling? And Because um, so, some heckles get very painful and very hurtful. Um, she recently had a lady just stood up and shouted, spec savers. Um, I, uh, I said, Atkins. Uh, <laughs> That, that showed the anorexic bitch, but um, <laughs> she, it was it was a, it was a charity gig uh, for the anorexic charity. Um, have your cake and eat it. I don't know. As you weirdly, I then got asked to perform at the bulimic charity Fingers. Uh, <laughs> you know, because because they just wanted gags and. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry about that one. Uh, that was good, yeah. Anyway, but uh, I, I couldn't do it. I had too much on my plate. So, um, <laughs> joke's probably better coming out of a girl's mouth. We, um, it's different, no, but so finding out I'm a comic is fine. Finding out I'm Jewish, it's di- I Actually, I was doing a gig about six months ago in Newcastle, and it was a rough gig. I don't know if hepatitis has an odor, but um, it came out I was Jewish uh, because I brought it up. And um, 
this massive bloke at the back, he just stood up and he went, Jesus Christ, you fucking Jew. Now, yes, technically that statement is historically accurate, but uh, <laughs> what I pointed out to him, I said, mate, I prefer the term Jewish. I think Jew is a very harsh sounding word. Jewish is a bit softer. And he was like, yeah, whatever, you're a Jew. Which personally, I thought was very anti-semantic. Just checking the levels there. Uh, got, got a few, few professors in. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, I, and look, it was, I think it was a nice later instance. Anti-Semitic instance ha have doubled in the last eight years, which is how long I've been doing comedy. But um, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not afraid about that element, the ethnic element. That's not what I'm here to talk about. And I feel very, I'm very proud of being English and British and, and, and Jewish. And, and I could say, that, you know, it's a great place to be. The Holocaust could never happen in, in Britain. Uh, we just don't have the train system for it. <laughs> no. Yeah, at the end, there'd just be a bunch of Jews at the station. Yeah. Looking where our watches used to be. Um, it's weird. That, but bringing up the Jewish things, I was, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about this, this thing that happened in Newcastle. That did happen, this guy. And she said, Josh, you brought up the Jewish thing. What are you hoping to achieve? And I thought about it. And I don't want to sound pretentious. I want to use my comedy to break down negative Jewish stereotypes because I hear there's a lot of money in that. And <laughs> I, I, I hate these stereotypes. Jews are stingy. No, it's damaging and it's wrong. That's the Scottish. But... Um, <laughs> I'm joking, um, and I just, you know, it's, it's a frustrating thing. But talking about being religious, that that is that is different, and that that is something that is much much more personal. And um, I mean, we I'm assuming we have some some Jewish people here because I, I can see you. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> do we have any religious Jews in? Let's see. You have a few religious. Yeah, they're afraid to put. As a guy came up to me a couple of nights ago after the gig, and he was like, "I'm Jewish," and I was like, "Why the hell didn't you put your hand up?" He said, "If you were going down, I didn't want to go down with you." But uh, <laughs> we've. So we do. I know we got a religious. I've seen the yarmulke. Jews. Why do we wear the yarmulke? Is it some sort of uh, foreskin replacement? Uh, but the Lord taketh, He returneth uh, on the head. I, my rabbi says it separates the divine from the physical, a kind of diaphragm uh, for bad thoughts. But. Uh, <laughs> I think it just makes it easier for God up there to spot us. Uh, it's like a celestial sat-nav, which is why every time I commit a sin, I take it off. You know what I'm saying? If I have a wank, take it off. You know, uh, finish my wank, put it back on, you know. Uh, but, then, uh, but then it doesn't explain why, why Jewish women don't wear yarmulkes, I guess. Uh, because, of course, actually, you know, I guess God can, can hear them. But uh, <laughs> anyway, but... Um, do, do we have any Muslims here? That was what I was gonna, do we have any Muslims here? That would, that's a whole, don't we, there's a whole thing, of course, Jews, that we hate Muslims, and it's a bullshit rumor. They probably started it. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about converting to Islam recently. I've recently had a child, and, and, um, and I was in the... Pa parents will know, choosing a name for your kid is hard work. And I was in the bookshop in the baby section. There was this book, Baby Names for Muslim Boys, by Abdul Akhman Muhammad. And I opened it up, just said, refer to cover. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to... Of course, there is a lot of tension that exists between our communities, and I'm sure you've all been reading what's going on in the papers in Arnest Grove Tesco's uh, in North London uh, at the moment. I'm not a political comic. The closest I've got is a joke about September 10th, 
But um, <laughs> it's, it's all, I've got to say, I'm very much against Tesco's. I was in Tesco's about a year ago. I got stung by a bee next to the insect repellent. There's nothing they won't do to make money. But this is worse than that. What they've done in Arnold's Grove Tesco's, they have moved the halal section next to the kosher section. And not only that, as the ethnic demographic of the area is changing, the halal section is expanding into. <laughs> the kosher section. Now, I wish there was some sort of metaphor. Uh, it's like they're invading our land or something. And... Uh, I'm doing what I can to halt it. I build a massive wall of mozza. Uh, <laughs> in case you'll do a little incursion of gefilte fish. And um, I spoke to uh, the manager, right? And the manager's Muslim, you know. And he was like, I'm sorry, but the halal section was here first. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? No, the kosher section was here first. He was like, no, the halal section. I said, I don't want to be, you know, you might be getting confused. We got kicked on by the pasta section for a bit, but... Uh, <laughs> That jar of olives is, that's ours. That's ours, jar of olives, you know. Uh, and it got quite heated, and I was like, look, mate, before this was a Tesco's, there was a kosher section here. When this was just desert. S sorry, uh, dessert. Um, Now, bring back the reduced to clear aisle, you know. But um, I don't know. It's, 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 uh, I was driving with a, you know, comics do a lot of driving, and we're in the car together. And, we, you know, we get through the usual, the usual subjects. Uh, and, uh, and then it sort of gradually came out that he went to church and that I went to synagogue. And it really felt like we were, because amongst comics, and I think amongst wider society, being religious, you know, it, it has some negative connotations that you're, you're opting out somehow, that you can't hack it uh, with the rest of us. You're ascending into anonymity. And, um, it's, and speaking to this guy, it just as we sort of, oh, you go to church, and I go to... And he, I felt this connection with him, you know, and, uh, of course, you know, he's wrong. But uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, I mean, I, you know, it's sort of been mentioned. I, did, I, I trained to be a rabbi. I, I got kicked out. I was raised as, uh, as, a, as a hippie, and I had all these horrible experiences. When I was 16, my mom made me drink my own urine. Um, that's a true story, which was meant to be detoxifying. And it didn't do anything. It only made my asparagus taste weird. But, uh, <laughs> and that's, that pushed me. The Buddhism, all of that, I, I wanted out of, you know, I wanted into organized religion, out of disorganized religion. And... Uh, <laughs> And I, that's it. I trained to be a rabbi, and but I, I to be honest, I, I couldn't hack it. There was a, the tension there, the conflict between being special and being the same, and I couldn't handle. It. I actually thought for a while I was the, the Messiah. It was a bit of a weird time, but anyway. But uh, the Messiah complex, you know, which sounds like an apartment block uh, for single <laughs> Jewish men in their thirties, but. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I got kicked out. I, was, I've, I met this Roman Catholic girl from Rome. Um, and uh, she's about a human-shaped piece of bacon, if you will. And uh, <laughs> I, I had the munchies, and uh, I took her back to the dormitory, got caught by one of the rabbis, and, and I was kicked out. This was the wrath of God of, of, the, of the Torah, uh, as opposed to his more benign presence uh, in the sequel. Um, <laughs> new writers, different direction. But we, um, and I came back, from that experience, and I, I was lost, and uh, I was very confused, and I still had these 
you know, exactly the same feelings. And I tried different identities. Uh, obviously, I was, you know, I was black for a bit. And uh, <laughs> got into hip-hop. I started a Jewish rap group. We were called Circumcised. I, uh, I was Snip Doggy Dog. And, <laughs> and the thing is, you can choose these identities. Uh, you know, it's, it's how much worth you put on. Oscar Wilde said, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives are mimicry. Their passions are quotation. But gay men will say anything when they're trying to fuck you. So... <laughs> I have to, um... Choose that. I couldn't, I couldn't do the gay... I wanted to do the gay thing. I was never gay-gay, but I was, like, maybe half-assed. And, uh... But, uh... You can't... I, you can't be gay. I don't know if you know... You, know, you can't be Jewish and, and gay. Uh, as, as my rabbi always says, two shlongs don't make a kike. And, uh... <laughs> Very proud of myself when I wrote that one, but uh, <laughs> but through out of that confusion, I, I met my wife to be, and through our journey together, we came across Reform Judaism. Now, I think some people uh, think of Reform Judaism as you only go to synagogue twice a year, uh, Yom Kippur and, and Christmas, um, but <laughs> it's uh, it's not about that. It's it, it for us. It's it, we go every week. We're part of a community, and it's not about opting out. It's um, it's not, you know, the absolving ourselves of individual responsibility and letting others think for you. It's the opposite of that. We, we're opting in. We're engaging. Uh, we're debating morals, questioning what's right, what's wrong. We're adapting our life to fit those choices. And if those choices don't work, we adapt those choices, you know. And, uh, and that, is, that is really what it's about. And uh, I'm not saying that's true of all religions. And I'm not even saying that's true of Judaism. That's just true of my experience within Reform Judaism. And uh, going to shul is, is, is what we're doing here. We're debating, we're questioning, growing, hopefully, and, and moving forward and uh, supporting each other. Some of them even come to my gigs. Uh, and uh, I, I guess religion, for me, it plays an active, more than the perceived passive role, uh, you know, of, of expression of individual identity. And uh, to some, religion is, is a dirty word, um, but it doesn't have to be. It just depends on how you use it. So Shabbat Shalom, and very nice to meet you all. Thank you very much.